Something I pondered as I was looking at this section is that eyewitness here is a young girl. And for someone like Luke to determine that that is credible reflects the gospel in his heart. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Today we're beginning our Christmas series entitled The Eyewitnesses of Christmas. In this series, we'll be examining the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke, and we'll pay special attention to the eyewitnesses of the events of Christmas. We'll consider together how their testimonies assisted Luke in compiling his detailed accounts of the life of Jesus, written carefully for a man named Theophilus. We'll see the players in a chain of information that made its way from the events of Christmas to the physician and researcher who would write out their details years after the Lord's ascension. Luke's gospel has the fingerprints of an investigative reporter all over it. (laughs) The details he provides, which for me once seemed superfluous, now shine with significance. Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, both in word and in deed, carried out the works prepared in advance for him to walk in by conducting careful and faithful research and forever placing in our hands details that can be examined and tested in scripture and within the pages of human history. And in doing so, the common skeptic can find themselves standing face to face with our Messiah. By the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke left us a masterful piece of literature that stands up to scrutiny. The written Christmas story is not merely a story. It's testable evidence of our God. We have to say again that our faith is not without evidence. And this year, as we think about the story of Christmas, we celebrate the fact that our God has made Himself known to us. But before we get started, let me remind you that you can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails with links to articles, podcast transcripts, our YouTube channel, and other ministry news. You can also donate a year-end gift to the ministry at that web address. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and leave a review wherever you listen. So, Colleen, here's my question for you. As an Adventist, what did you think about the details in Scripture? The names, the places, the dates, the details about who is leading, and how has that changed for you now? That's a really interesting question. I'd never actually thought about that before preparing for this podcast. I hated them, to be really honest. All those little details, all those little pedantic things just meant nothing to me. Mm-hmm. Like, so what that Luke wrote to, the, to Theophilus, mm-hmm. you know? And there were a lot of things about the beginning of Luke that I never would have even noticed as an Adventist. For one thing, it never really gave me any sort of pause that Luke was a Gentile. Mm-hmm. The only writer who's a Gentile. <laughs> I didn't know. So there's just a lot of details that now make it seem really interesting. It's like these details tell me that these events were true. Mm-hmm. There were witnesses, there were sources, God appointed the writers. And you know, another thing I didn't understand about Luke that I now understand because of our long journey through Acts with FAF, (laughs) Luke was a traveling companion of Paul Mm -hmm. during a lot of his second missionary journey, and even third. And I didn't know that. 
he had a lot of firsthand experience with the planting of the church, and he would have heard Paul give the gospel over and over and over. He had his own eyewitnesses from whom he was learning. Mm -hmm. And now he, as a Gentile, a writer of scripture, is giving these details to us. And I find that just amazing and an astonishing provision by our God who is sovereign. And I used to would have thought this (laughs) was just boring detail that didn't make any difference to the story. All that mattered was the story. But the story actually is made up of reality and details, and it's those things that give us the confidence to believe the story. Yeah. What about you? You know, I used to get pretty bored with details like genealogies or even names of cities, um, what day it was, what month it was. We read so often in the Gospel of John on the third day. (laughs) That didn't mean anything to me until I understood what was happening there. Uh, I think part of it was that when I needed scripture, because I didn't only go to read and learn about God, I went when I needed it. Right. And so when I needed scripture, I needed to just flip it open and it had to apply to my life. And Mm -hmm. if I bumped into a list of names or towns or anything like that, it was like, okay, I just keep scrolling. Right. Keep looking for something that would apply to my problem, whatever it was. So yeah, I found it pretty boring. And yet, when I read Dale Ratzlaff's book, The Truth Led Me Out, one of the ways I knew he was telling the truth was that he was name dropping. (laughs) He was putting details and facts in his book that could be checked out, that could be verified. And if he wasn't being honest, it'd be really easy to expose that. And yet no one was exposing him. And so I understood that when you share information that can be checked on, it's because you're coming from a place of confidence. And as I look at at this gospel now, especially coming off of the year or two now that we've come off of where yes. we're all trying to get a sense of the big picture and we're taking we're taking details and we're we're examining them and we're testing them and it's sort of where everyone's living right now, yeah. trying to understand what's going on in this world. And you look at Luke and you see he's made that so easy for us. He's given us information, details, places, names, people, and you can see the work he put into writing this letter, and it's just so trustworthy. And isn't it interesting that only Luke's gospel gives the story of the birth of Jesus? Yeah, he went all the way back. He did. The (laughs) only one who did. Yeah. The Gentile gives us that. Yeah. I just love that. Yeah, well, you know, and when you're when you're trying to learn from something that you weren't there for, right? It's one question after another after another, and you can see how this just led him all the way to the beginning. Well, what happened before that? Well, how did we know? You know, yeah, he has that inquisitive mind, and he gives this to us, and he says in the intro, which we'll read, that it's so that Theophilus can be certain about the things he's been taught. You know, doesn't it make you think how? I know we've talked about this over the years, Nikki, that somehow coming out of Adventism with a really skewed understanding of Scripture has given us certain 
questions that we've had to answer Mm -hmm. that our Christian friends who've been believers from childhood don't struggle with like we do. Mm -hmm. It's driven us to find those details. And somehow I I see that maybe possibly being part of Luke's story. He didn't have growing up in the synagogue behind him. He didn't Mm -hmm. have the law as part of his upbringing. He had to learn the Old Testament and he had to learn those prophecies and understand how Jesus fulfilled them. And his deep understanding has yielded the only gospel that gives us the birth story of Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) It's really pretty cool. Colleen, we've talked a lot on this podcast about how we approach Scripture. Right. So, what are some things that we need to highlight before we begin reading the Gospel of Luke? Well, we need to know who's writing, which we've talked about. We need to know the audience. And we need to know the purpose and the occasion. What? Why is he doing this? Mm-hmm. And he kind of tells us, doesn't he? He does, right, right there at the beginning. The one thing that which you already said that he doesn't say here in the beginning of this letter is that he also wrote the Acts of the Apostles, which again would be sharing about his own experience with Paul, but also gathering information. So yes. there again, we see a lot of that sort of investigative yep. reporting. So, what we're going to do today is we're going to discuss Luke 1, 1 through 38. We're going to talk about the two impossible pregnancies that launch this story. So, Nikki, why don't you read the whole passage for us, and then we can go back and talk about it. Okay. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught." In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. 
And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In reading through this and looking back at the story of Zacharias, what do we know about Zacharias and what do we know about the circumstances? Why is this such a remarkable event that A, Zacharias is in the temple, B, Gabriel appears to him with a message? What are the details of this that make this so remarkable? Well, the first one that comes to mind is that Israel has just had 400 years of silence. God has not spoken. He has not sent an angel. He has not sent a prophet to the people. They've had no word from God. Not since Malachi. Or as my friend Amy sometimes says, Malachi. (laughs) (laughs) Since Malachi finished writing, there had been no word from the Lord. So, Zacharias has been chosen by Lot to offer incense in the temple. What do we know about his background? I mean, how how did this even come to be? Who was Zacharias? Why was he there? And who was his wife? Well, we know from the beginning of Luke here that Zacharias was a priest, that he was from the division of Abijah, Mm -hmm. and his wife was also from the daughters of Aaron. Isn't that interesting? They were both priestly, mm-hmm. of priestly descent. And it's, I'm always fascinated by the fact that they drew lots to determine who would go in there. And God chose Zacharias. Yeah, that's true. It's interesting to me, too. I remember once our Pastor Gary preaching through this passage, and I was looking in the study notes in my study Bible here regarding this passage. And it was interesting to me, this whole business of his being part of the division of Abijah, there was a reference back to both First Chronicles and the book of Numbers. And in the time of David, 
the priests were all divided into divisions so they would take their turns doing the temple work because the temple had to you know be served all the time and there were many priests in the line of Levi so they were divided into divisions and they each had their own times and then within the divisions they were chosen by lot to do these specific duties and it was interesting that there were so many of these priests that a priest could go his whole lifetime without ever being selected to actually go into the temple and do the incense. Wow. Or it might be once in a lifetime. Now, we don't know that Zacharias had ever done this before, but the likelihood that he had was slim, just given the numbers of people that were involved in the casting of the lots. And like you said, God picked him for this moment to have the first word from the Lord in 400 years. One of the things that I appreciate about Luke which I've already mentioned, are the details that he offers. This is all verifiable. The Jews kept record of everything. Just like the divisions listed in Numbers and First Chronicles. Yeah, this is why the scriptures have so many genealogies in them. They know who's who. Yeah. And so for Luke to, to be able to nail down the names of John the Baptist's parents and the, the priestly order that he served from and the lineage that even Elizabeth came from. Yeah. It's pretty incredible, and he's offering this here to the readers for their review. Because it was a matter of record. Yeah. Accessible record. So here we have Zacharias being chosen by Lot to go into the temple and offer the incense at the time of prayer, which was, I think, a daily occurrence where, you know, Israel would pray. And the incense represented the prayers of the people, and the priest would offer the incense on that altar of incense, which was according to Leviticus, just outside, in the holy place, outside the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. When you went into the holy place of the temple, there'd be the table of showbread, there'd be the candlesticks, and then right in front of the veil, before you could walk through the veil like the high priest would do on the Day of Atonement, would be the altar of incense. And just on the other side of that veil was the mercy seat where the Shekinah glory dwelt. So it was kind of an interesting placement. And that's where Zechariah was, offering the incense that accompanied the prayers. And there was a multitude of people outside. So here we have some eyewitnesses. We don't know them by name, Mm -hmm. but they're going to see something unusual. And the text says that they knew he'd seen a vision because he came out, he couldn't speak. All those people then are going to go and they're going to take note of this and they're going to wonder about this and talk about this. Especially since there was not anything like this in the history of Israel for 400 years. They knew something had happened Mm -hmm. that was new in the last 400 years. And you know, sometimes, Nikki, when I try to think what the impact of 400 years would mean, think about our country. It's not yet 300 years old. And we have trouble remembering you know, the significance of the details of even that first Thanksgiving. So, 400 years of Israel now being under the control of Rome and no word from the Lord, that multitude of people knew something happened to Zacharias. So, what was the message of this angel to Zacharias and what was so significant about it for him? Well, he told him that that his prayer, his petition has been heard. And that his wife would bear a son, and not just any son. He told him what to name him. 
He told him that he was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit while he was in his mother's womb, that he was going to turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And then he quotes from scripture, the prophecy about coming in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. And he ascribes this to Zechariah's son. And Zechariah knew this prophecy. He was a Jewish priest. He knew it. And here the messenger of the Lord is telling him, this is going to be fulfilled in your son born to your barren wife. And you know, I have to laugh because it's so relatable as a human His response after getting this news, he knows this is coming. He knows the Lord has promised this forerunner. And yet his first response, and by the way, he's speaking with an angel. (laughs) And his first response, how will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. (laughs) I get that. I do too. But the angel didn't like that very much. (laughs) (laughs) What did the angel do? He says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I'm bringing you this information. And since you don't believe me, you'll be mute. But what a witness to all those people. Yeah, yeah. And and this is one of those places where I see tension. Yeah. Because God sovereignly determined that this would be how he would bring John into the world. And that this would not go quietly. This would not be a subtle thing. The people are going to marvel and store this up in their heart. And so God's hand is in this. And at the same time, Zechariah has a part to play in his questioning how on earth this could (laughs) possibly happen. And Zechariah is also being disciplined Mm -hmm. by God Mm -hmm. in being mute. And yet this very muteness is going to be released and used when the baby's finally born to add credibility to the name he is supposed to receive. And here we have an example of of a situation where we can see the discipline of the Lord blessing the one he's disciplining. Yes. So, if Zacharias was surprised and disoriented and had trouble believing he was seeing an angel for the first time in 400 years in Israel, that he would be the one and his son was the fulfillment of prophecy, (laughs) he had nine full months to trust God. And his muteness was like a witness to him that it was for real. He couldn't ever say, well, maybe this would have happened anyway. Well, you know, maybe this wasn't just a miracle. He couldn't do that. This was a sign also to the people. It says the people were waiting for Zechariah and were wondering at his delay in the temple. So it took a little longer to send those prayers up this time. (laughs) (laughs) And it left them wondering about it. And so then when he comes out unable to speak, they somehow realized that he'd seen a vision. They just jumped to that somehow. Yeah, and he'd been gesticulating to them, apparently. He was motioning and trying to explain what he couldn't say, and they understood. Yeah, they knew something had happened, and you know they didn't go home and not mention it. Of course. (laughs) No, this was intended to happen in front of the multitude. Yeah, and, and you think about how that could have just scattered among the people. Yeah. I imagine... And this, again, I'm engaging my imagination. There's nothing authoritative here, but I imagine it wasn't too difficult for Luke to access this information. I'm thinking that too. Jerusalem would have heard about this, Mm -hmm. especially since nobody had seen an angel from the Lord in 400 years. Yeah. And then you fast forward to John's ministry and dots are going to be connected and discussed. God set it up so there would be eyewitnesses. 
look at uh, verses 24 and 25. Talk to me about Elizabeth. I just think this is such a brief but poignant section. She might be an introvert. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, she might. (laughs) It says that after she became pregnant, she kept herself in seclusion for five months, and she was just rejoicing in the Lord. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. I imagine if a woman were in this situation who didn't fear God, right? and suddenly her disgrace has been removed and she's pregnant, you might picture her flaunting that. Like, look, guys, look, I'm uh-huh. pregnant. It happened yeah. for me. Yes. But she put herself away for a time and just rejoiced in God's favor and love for her. Yes, and especially when you remember that in the law, in the Torah, to be barren was a sign of God's judgment. Mm-hmm. It was a sign of judgment against people who had persisted in sin or had been unfaithful. You know, not bearing flocks, not bearing children was a sign of judgment against Israelites. Even though she hadn't sinned, even though this barrenness was God's will, so that his amazing provision would be clearly seen. She had lived with that feeling that she was experiencing something that signified God was displeased with her. Mm. Even though her husband was a priest, even though she herself was of Levitical descent. Yeah. And she didn't know it, but the Lord looked with favor upon both of them. He said that in verse 6, They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So that just goes to show you what God sees isn't always mirrored and reflected in your society and in the culture you're surrounded by. Kind of makes me think of Job, yeah, who knew he hadn't sinned against God deliberately, and yet here he was Mm -hmm. experiencing God's judgment in some way. So the eyewitnesses that he leaves us with in this section are Zacharias, Elizabeth, and this crowd, this it's multitude crowd. waiting for Zacharias. And some of the verifiable details, this happened in the days of Herod, who was the king of the Jews. Zacharias was a priest in the division of Abijah, married to Elizabeth from the daughters of Aaron, chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord. And Elizabeth conceived and remained secluded for five months. This is all stuff that can be checked out. That's really amazing, Nikki. You know, the difference between a cultural myth And a story such as this, well, I can imagine that there would be some people who would say, what's the difference? But there is a difference because Luke is calling and naming Mm -hmm. witnesses, Mm -hmm. referring to witnesses. And the myths of of the cultures don't contain those kinds of witnesses, human witnesses that other people can speak to and verify and read. Yeah, Luke is making clear that this is rooted in history, and he told Theophilus that this was handed down by the people who were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, and he says that he investigated all of it carefully, and he was giving it to him in consecutive order so that he would know the exact truth. When you give someone something to prove the truth, you're giving them evidence. That's right. And that's what we see all over Luke. Yes. I love Luke. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what do we see next? The story shifts. We know that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, and he goes to Mary, and he brings her some good news. What do we understand this sixth month to refer to? A little further down, he refers to Elizabeth being in her sixth month 
of pregnancy. So it appears that this is in context referring to Elizabeth's becoming pregnant just in the part of the story that we were just told. Mm -hmm. And that in the sixth month after that appearance of Gabriel and Elizabeth's becoming pregnant, Gabriel makes a new appearance. And it's interesting because when he came to Zacharias in the temple, what city was that in? That was in Jerusalem. Yeah. And Jerusalem is in Judah, which is in the south of Israel. It's in what was the southern kingdom back, you know, in the time of the divided nation. But now he's going to appear in Nazareth. And where is Nazareth? That's up north. Isn't that near the Gentile cities? Yes, it is. It's up by the Sea of Galilee, up in sort of quasi-Gentile territory. It's far away. It's in the other end of the kingdom. And who does he go to? He goes to Mary, very young Mary. She's betrothed to Joseph. Wow. And he tells her that she's favored and that the wow. Lord is with her. You know, she was perplexed. <laughs> well, I think, I think that's funny. Kind of funny, too. <laughs> I mean, she's perplexed and it says, kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Yeah, a little <laughs> suspicious. <laughs> So, he comes to Mary, says she is favored, and then in verse 30, what does he say to her? It's kind of an interesting thing, because angels always seem to say this to people in the Bible. Yeah, he tells her, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. Did Ellen White ever speak of being afraid when she saw an angel? No. Did she ever speak of being afraid when she saw the, quotes lovely Jesus? No, I don't recall anything like that. She showed no fear. The Bible is very clear that when humans encounter angels that are sent from God with messages, the angels always say, fear not. Mm -hmm. There is something remarkable about encountering an angel with a message from God that is not just, oh, isn't that sweet? I have an angel on my shoulder. (laughs) There's fear involved because angels are divinely sent beings with authority and presence. And Mary needed to be reassured Mm -hmm. that she was not in trouble. She was not being judged. She was not in danger. But she'd found favor with God. Can you imagine being told that? No. (laughs) No. Mm -mm. Pre-cross. Yeah. You know, this is Israel. And she's just a young girl. Yeah. Engaged to be married, which is all so interesting. Matthew tells us a little bit extra about Joseph that Luke doesn't necessarily tell us, but it's just such an interesting thing that God would pick a woman, young, young woman, engaged to a godly man and bring his son about in this way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because if you think about it, Israel was expecting their Messiah, and they were expecting him to come and to bring in the kingdom. He was going to (laughs) take Jerusalem by storm, and he was going to get rid of their enemies. And so, you would think that would come from someone in the priestly order, right? Right. Like that it would come from a Zacharias. But instead, the forerunner comes from Zacharias. The Messiah comes from little Mary, engaged to a a nobody, a, a carpenter from Bethlehem. That's true. He comes quietly. The Messiah comes quietly. The forerunner, the one that is to point them to the Messiah, the one that would grab their attention because of where he's from, he comes through the priest. Yeah. With a multitude who witnessed his father post-vision. 
Yeah. And now he's going to grow up and he's going to point them to someone greater than him who comes with a very unpublic announcement to his mother with his reputation clouded in scandal, Mm -hmm. even though there was no scandal, but he had to live his life with that. There was no public announcement. That's so interesting. And even Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth? There was nothing about his existence that was attractive to the people. But there was one thing that was a sign to anybody who was noticing. The angel told Mary that her son would be great and would be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. (laughs) What do we know from this about prophecy, about who and what her son would be? You know, if she knew the word, she knew this was the Messiah. He was coming from the line of David, and he was going to be the son of the Most High, that he he was going to reign over the house of Jacob. His kingdom would have no end. This is messianic prophecy. Exactly. And this is the fulfillment of the unconditional covenant God made with David. Back in 2 Samuel 7, when he said, you won't build me a house, I will build you a house. I will give you a nation, a throne, a dynasty. And here, Mary's son is going to be the fulfillment of that, which means that Mary was in what tribe? Judah. Yes. And interestingly, so was Joseph. So was Joseph, who was not Jesus's biological father, but it was his earthly father, his legal father on earth, Mm -hmm. and his tribal ancestry was Judah, the kingly tribe. So you have the forerunner coming from the tribe of Levi, yeah, passing the torch to the one coming from the tribe of Judah. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that take you to Hebrews? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) Wow. It's an amazing story. When you look at the details, it's absolutely amazing. This could never have just happened, especially when you understand what prophecy said and what God's covenants had promised. So what do you make of this, Colleen? I wondered about this. Mary asked the angel, how can this be? When Zacharias asked, how can this be? He was disciplined. But when Mary asked, he answered her with no reprimand. I can't answer for sure, but I can tell you as I'm thinking it through, Zechariah was an old man who was a priest who knew the law. Mm. And he knew the prophecies. He knew that the angel had quoted Malachi to him. He also was being told that his wife would be pregnant. And for Zechariah, that would be his son too. Mm-hmm. So for Zechariah to say, well, how can this be? There was a certain doubt in his own head that God was actually saying, you and Elizabeth will have a baby. Zacharias had to act on God's word. There was nothing Mary needed to act on. She was going to experience a singular miracle, and she needed to have an understanding of what to expect, I think. Do you think there was a sense of compassion because of her I'm sure her age and her probable ignorance? I'm sure. According to what we know about the ages that people got married in Israel in the first century, she was probably 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. She was a girl. She would not have known 
scripture and prophecy to the extent that old man Zacharias would. And she was going to actually have that physical child in her body. And she would need some way to understand what was happening to her. And I think it was just so compassionate of the angel to Mm -hmm. explain to her without any details, but just to explain to her what was going to happen to her. There's no other woman who's ever lived, who's ever experienced this kind of thing. She wouldn't have had anybody able to explain it to her. She needed the angel to explain it to her, to tell her. You know, I can't begin to try to guess at God's reasons or motives for anything, but it sure is convenient (laughs) that Elizabeth was so much further along so that when Mary goes to Elizabeth, she can have some help understanding what's coming. (laughs) I've thought that too. And especially since Elizabeth had a physically impossible pregnancy as well. Yeah. It wasn't the same kind of miracle. It was more of a miracle of God bringing her and her husband back to life so they could have a baby. Mm -hmm. But she could help and understand that Mary really had significant experience with the Lord, Mm -hmm. that she had had a miraculous pregnancy, and that the angel had come to her. I don't know anybody who could have helped Mary understand her situation like Elizabeth. Yeah. Whoever Mary's mother was, she was undoubtedly a believer because Mary was clearly a believer. They trusted God in some way, but her own mother wouldn't have had the same insight into what Mary was experiencing that Elizabeth would have. And what an amazing thing that the angel told her, Elizabeth, your relative is also pregnant. And he said, nothing will be impossible with God. So these impossible pregnancies were the first hint to Mary who was going to raise the Messiah. Can you imagine? Who was going to watch him do all of these things, store it all up in her heart. He told her nothing will be impossible with God. That would probably ring in her mind through Jesus's entire life. I would think so. And death and resurrection. (laughs) And her response, behold the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. You know, yesterday when I read that, and I've read it before, I thought this was God giving her faith. Mm-hmm. Because this young girl submitted herself to God and called herself bond slave. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing thing. Something I pondered as I was looking at this section is that eyewitness here is a young girl. And for someone like Luke to determine that that is credible reflects the gospel in his heart. Yes, it does. Oh my, you're right. And you know, think about it too. It's very possible that Mary was still alive when Luke became a believer. Mm -hmm. He might have actually been able to even speak to her. We don't know that for sure, but he might have met her. He probably would have met John, and John was given the task of caring for her as his mother Yeah, by Jesus on the cross. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. And only the Gentile (laughs) recorded and gathered these details for us. So many verifiable in this section. We know that it was in the sixth month that Mary became pregnant. We know that she lived in Nazareth of Galilee, that she was engaged to Joseph. That's confirmed for sure when they go to check in for the census. 
They named their son Jesus like the angel told them to. And Elizabeth was already in her six months of pregnancy, so we know John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. This is all easy for the people to check out. Absolutely. Even though I've read this many times, every time I look at it, and looking at it again this week for this series, Mm -hmm. for this year, it hits me in a new way how reliable Scripture is. Yeah. And I know the questions that come up. How can we know for sure? What if this? What if that? What about this person? What about the Gospel of Thomas? Et cetera, et cetera. And I just want to say, this is what God has given us. This is what we have. And this is what claims for itself to be God's Word. And here is Luke giving us evidence with eyewitnesses, verifiable details set in time with public records of history and rulers, and who was on the throne when. And we can know that these details are true. And like Mary, who had this singular experience where an angel came to her and told her the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and she would bear the Son of God. And she said, behold, the bondslave of the Lord. This is what we can do when God reveals himself to us. He appears to us. He reveals our darkness to ourself. He reveals our need and he leads us to repentance. And we can say, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, like Mary did. And he creates us new and brings us to the work he's prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2.10. And this Christmas, that is my prayer for each person who hears this podcast, that you will know the Lord revealing himself to you, revealing your need, revealing the impossible reality that he's making you alive and bringing you from death, and that you can say to him, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails with links to articles, podcast transcripts, our YouTube channel, and other ministry news. You can also donate a year-end gift to the ministry at that web address. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and leave a review wherever you listen. And join us next week as we continue our series, The Eyewitnesses of Christmas. We'll see you then.